1997, director James Cameron and star Kate Winslet gave the world a fiery romance that would soon be drenched in the cold waters of the Atlantic. In 2021, we try a fan favorite but unconventional whiskey. The film is Titanic. The whiskey is Michter's US-1 Unblended American Whiskey. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1997 Best Picture winner, Titanic. Brad, Bob, I don't know I... if like uh, uh, no, oh, oh, I'm steamrolling you, man. I'm ready to hop in today. Listen, <laughs> I don't know if I can adequately describe, A, how excited I am for this, but also B, what a monumental moment this is for people our age to be talking about this movie like this is one of the first times where as a 30 year old man i feel like i can say to the young people you don't understand like you do not understand what it was like to be alive even as a child in the era of the movie titanic this was the last film i think brad that it, it was just such a juggernaut and like the avengers movies just don't compare in terms of like cultural footprint I don't know, man. Like, even before we start giving initial impressions, I, I just have to ask you, like, do you remember what it was like being alive during the era of Titanic? Well, I will say, Bob, you always uh, accuse me of having like the hottest of hot takes. I'm pretty sure you saying that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has not had the same type of cultural footprint as uh, Titanic. I'm pretty sure that's a pretty daggone hot take, bro. It's I think it's a hot take, but. I, I would stand by it because this was when movies stuck around in theaters for like a year at a time. This movie was playing in theaters 18 months after it came out. And I think like everybody went to see Avengers. It had the same kind of buzz and the same kind of cultural impact for a moment that Titanic had. But I mean, you know, within a month, everyone knew the ending of the movie and we had consumed it and we were done with it. So I kind of feel like it never had the staying power like built into it that Titanic had going for it. Yeah, I mean, 20 years after this movie comes out, you're still getting memes featuring Celine Dion, My Heart Will Go On. You still have people talking about whether or not Jack could fit on the the door at the end of the movie. Like, this is a movie that has endured the test of time thus far. And Bob, I will say, when this movie came out, like, there's a lot of reasons it became a powerhouse. But really, My Heart Will Go On is one of the best just bangers ever written by like a pop star for a movie. Oh, for, for sure, man. And we're going to get into talking about all this. Uh, but before we do, Brad, we need to bring in our special guest host for the day. As you know, we've been bringing in a ton of really great guest hosts this season for season four. And today is no exception. We have with us today one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram, Jackie James, who is the founder of Whiskey with Jackie James and a whole host of other things. I'm going to let her speak for herself. But first of all, Jackie, thank you for joining us today. And how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. And I am a huge fan of yours, too. I love movies. I love pop culture. I love whiskey. And I love when our worlds intersect like this. So thank you so much. I feel very honored to be here. 
Well, Jackie, why don't you take a moment and, you know, some of our audience is probably very familiar with you and your work. Some of them might not be. So can you just kind of take a moment and give a broad overview of how you got into the world of whiskey, what you're currently doing in the world of whiskey and beyond that as well? Absolutely. So I kind of just fell upon whiskey. Uh, a friend of mine wanted to take me out to celebrate and he took me to a whiskey bar in LA called Seven Grand. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm a wine and champagne, maybe vodka soda person. And he's like, just try this. So I, this is very snobby. But the first sip of whiskey I had was a Van Winkle 12 lot B. And I said, this is amazing. Why don't you just buy the whole bottle? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me like I was on crack. And now I understand why. Because I was thinking it was a little more affordable. Um, we ended up having what was one of the best nights of my life. Because we were outside with three different groups of men who were drinking whiskey. And they all had a very special situation. There was a father and son that the father was telling the son about his grandfather having cancer. There was a mentor and a mentee in brokerage that were learning about things. And two friends who were having, one of them was having some marital issues and the other friend was giving advice. Hmm. So basically we all started talking as a group and it was the most touching experience where strangers were getting to know each other. And I thought to myself, gosh, I have never seen this with vodka soda. And it really made me respect whiskey. Hmm. So I would say I fell in love with whiskey even before the juice itself because of the feeling and the people and how it brought a bunch of strangers together. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It yeah, just there's, changed my life. Yeah. There's like a certain level of camaraderie with whiskey that I don't know. It kind of transcends any other alcoholic beverage that I've consumed. Like wine is great and you can really get into all the different notes and regions and all that. But there, it feels like there's like a snobbishness to wine. Mm hmm. That just mm -hmm. I, you just don't find that with whiskey. I, everybody seems to be able to enjoy the lowest of the low pours and yet at the same time move to the highest price type things. And from top to bottom, people are just like, you know what? We just love whiskey and we love being with whiskey people. Yeah. And like Bob and I started this podcast wanting to talk about movies and whiskey because we like those two things. And we had no idea about the world of whiskey that there is on social media and, you know, in the real world and, and just how friendly it is. And, and, you know, like I said, my first taste was something very exclusive and high end. I had no idea. And I didn't know until way later when one of the people that worked there gave me a heads up that I was making my friend a little uncomfortable because I kept saying, go buy the bottle. <laughs> um, but that's how... So from there, my passion really grew. I was working in sports at the time and I shared on Instagram. I said, you guys, I know this is out of my wheelhouse because I'm kind of that sports person, but how would you feel if I learned about whiskey and shared a whiskey Wednesday tip every Wednesday? So the first person that liked it was Connor McGregor. The second was my friend, Jackie Bradley Jr., who played for the Red Sox at the time. And I asked, I literally post about you guys all the time and you never like it. <laughs> Why did you like this? And going back to that human point, it was like they might be athletes or in the spotlight, but it's still a job to them, mm -hmm. right? Now, this is before I knew Connor had proper 12. So he also obviously had a different uh, motivation there as well. <laughs> but it was like, huh, you're right. Just because you play professional baseball for a living doesn't mean you want to talk about that all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, especially now with the pandemic and politics and everything being what it's been, I have truly found that whiskey gives us all something to talk about. And it's not intimidating in the way you just said with wine, 
you know, when I, I now, so I'm a whiskey coach and consultant and I teach people about whiskey. And the biggest thing that I will say is there's no wrong way to drink your whiskey. Mm -hmm. There's no wrong way to like what you like or you don't like. Yep. So I'm really excited about being a whiskey coach and consultant and kind of in a new offering a different perspective with things like pop culture, movies, music. I'm really into crypto these days. But at the end of the day, it's about learning about different things, enjoying different things with whiskey underneath it. Jackie, I, I love it. Thank you so much for summarizing. And we are super excited to have you along for the ride today. Talking about a movie that is really near and dear to my heart. And I think to a lot of people that kind of grew up around the same time we did. Guys, I mean, I don't even really know where to start with the breakdown of this movie. Luckily, we have an episode outline that I have in front of me here. And it tells me that it's time for us to look at Brad Explains, America's favorite segment. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. Brad, just before we get into Brad Explains, this is not your first time seeing Titanic, right? Honestly, Bob, this is the first time I've ever sat down and watched it start to finish. What? Really? And I, I will say, while I was wow. watching it, I don't think that there was any moment of the movie where I was like, oh, I've never seen that part. Sure. So I'm pretty sure I've seen the entire film. But it's probably been over like three or four watches, you know, I don't know, in a friend's dorm room or here and there. So it was it was all familiar, but it was it really was wonderful to actually sit down and go, OK, let's watch this three hour and 14 minute <laughs> film. <laughs> all right, man. Well, you spent three hours and 14 minutes watching it, but you only get 60 seconds to explain it. Brad, can you break down the plot of this movie in less than one minute? I think I can do that. So Titanic is about a is about a film. So Titanic is a film about a young man named Jack Dawson who is, wins a ticket on board the Titanic, the unsinkable ship. And it is about his love interest, played by Kate Winslet, Rose, who is on the ship. And she is a highfalutin, wealthy lady who is engaged to the biggest just in the world. I mean, he's just the worst. I'm going to use up some of my 60 seconds to just reiterate the fact that he sucks. But it's all about how she and him fall in love. They She gets to enjoy parts of the lower class life. And then guess what? Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Titanic before, but it hits an iceberg and it sinks. And Rose loves him and she'll never let go to the freedom that he has given her. And also everyone dies. Uh, no, I mean, there's like 700 survivors. Yeah, sure. But I mean, all, and like all the people you care about, except Rose, just yeah. pretty much dead. Oh, no, the, the fiance lives too. Oh, yeah. Well, we don't care about him, yeah. though, right? <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brad, I mean, that's it's a very simple story, okay? And and James Cameron, the director of this movie, who we are going to get into talking about, you know, he, he was coming off of some really huge Hollywood successes. He started out making really small, I don't even want to say independent movies. He worked for Roger Corman making low-budget horror movies. And then, you know, he had this idea for the movie The Terminator. He was kind of this sci-fi genius. He gets hired to direct the sequel to Alien, Aliens, in 1986. That makes a whole bunch of money. By the Real early creative on the title work there. Right. By the early 90s, he's making Terminator 2. He's making true lies like the guy is just really on top of the world here. And then he says, Bob, would you say that he's the king of the world? I, you know, I would not. But he himself would. 
Because when he won the Oscar for this movie, he got up on stage and said that, which is just no, he did It's just the peak of human arrogance right there. But can can, can we put him saying that into this? Oh, 100 percent. Because it's it's if you watch the clip, too, it's like super unconvincing. He's just like, ah, king of the world. So <laughs> mom, dad, there's no way that I can express to you what I'm feeling right now. My heart is full to bursting, except to say. I'm the king of the world! <laughs> so anyway, uh, he he decides, like, I'm really into the idea of exploring the wreckage of the Titanic. And he starts spending lots of his own money on just going down there and looking at the Titanic. And he fi- he was inspired by a documentary where people had gone down and looked at the wreckage. And he said, I want to make a movie about exploring the Titanic. And I don't want to pay for it. I want a studio to pay for it. And so he went into 20th Century Fox and he pitched them a movie and he said, it's Romeo and Juliet on the Titanic. And we're going to bookend the movie with footage I film going to look at the wreckage of the Titanic. And my man had so much clout in Hollywood at the time that they were just like, all right, cool. Cut to a few years later, you know, he's making this gigantic movie the budget balloons to $200 million, which was far and away the most expensive movie ever made at the time. He is receiving criticism from all sides. They're saying this movie's going to sink the studio and like we will never recover from this and it's going to be a flop. And then it comes out and it becomes the highest grossing movie of all time. So he gets the last laugh. Like, Brad, when I watch this movie now, I look at it and, you know, we got Kate and Leo out of it. We got Celine Dion out of it. It's a great movie in itself. But this is one of those movies that I watch and I'm like, oh, this is like a director's monument to himself. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just I was aware the whole time I was watching the movie that the real star of the movie is James Cameron. See, I don't I don't know about that, because I think this in 1997 was his monument to himself. But then he made a movie called Avatar, which I I feel like is even like somehow bigger (laughs) and more monumental to himself. But it's not very good compared to Titanic. So I'm right there with you, man. This movie just screams, look at me. I'm big. I'm flashy. I mean, it's everything that the the Titanic was, right? It's like it's an unsinkable movie. And I, I think there are a few flaws here and there in the movie. I don't think that they sink the film. But it definitely is just a juggernaut of a film from from the absolute start to finish. For sure. The one thing that I would add is I do, I mean, the little, I've never met James Cameron, but I know he's been married, I think, five times. And um, I think Hollywood's an interesting place. You guys have an amazing perspective on a lot of things. I've never seen Avatar. My bad. I know. Um, maybe if we do another one of these with that, I'll have to watch it. <laughs> but, um, it's, it's genuinely he's okay. He's clearly brilliant. He's brilliant. Um, he did bring us... I I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but I, I do feel like Leo is kind of the last really big movie star. I mean, after oh, him, I feel like we have, you know, celebrities but and influencers, but... A hundred percent. Like, I don't yeah. I don't know of anyone else who can just drive box office based on their name anymore. Like, who has come after Leo? I mean, like, the closest thing that I think we kind of have now is, like, Michael B. Jordan is, is almost there. Like, you go see Creed. But, but even then, like, I feel like he is... He's popular because he is associated with things we're already familiar with, like the Rocky franchise. 
So, like, mm-hmm. Leo... And don't forget the Fantastic Four. <laughs> right. <laughs> with with Leo, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he, he hit it big, and he had this movie, which launched him into the absolute stratosphere, at the perfect time, because it's right before, you know, streaming takes off, and we have 8 billion options for what to watch, and no one can really carve out their piece of... You know, everybody's kind of in a niche at this point. And Leo's the last one, I think, that really transcended that. And I think that's a really good segue into talking about the performers in this movie. So we've got DiCaprio. We've got Kate Winslet. We have my man, Billy Zane, who is just, <laughs> it, you know, once in a while, Brad and I use the phrase chewing scenery on this podcast. And we had someone ask us once, like, what do you mean by chewing scenery? I think I'm just going to answer that question from now on with like, watch Billy Zane and Titanic because it yes. is it is the biggest, broadest, hammiest performance I have ever seen. And damn, Brad, if I didn't love every second of it, dude, Billy Zane in this movie, I mean, he just goes wild with every single line he has with every single second that he has on camera. He is just eating it all up. And I like I want to hate it like like I really do. <laughs> it almost feels like a made-for-TV movie actor who, like, is just trying his best to be the biggest actor in the world. But for some reason, I really think it's because he is playing opposite of Kate Winslet and Leo, that for some reason it just works. Like, it it just fits for the He's movie. He's a brilliant bad needs. guy, though. Too. Oh, my like, gosh. I yeah. just recently watched, um, did you guys see Dead Calm with no. Nicole Kidman? No. Oh, my gosh. So it was an older movie from before she got real mainstream famous okay. and it was Sam, Sam O'Neill. I want to say Sam Neill, Sam Neill from Jurassic it. Park. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yes, okay, yes. Okay. And her and Billy Zane. And the whole time I was kind of looking at it going, is that Billy Zane? Like a young Billy Zane. He's a very good bad guy. Oh, for sure. And Brad, like the thing that I loved so much about his performance was those first few scenes you get with him, you know, kind of talking down to the help and, being generally snobbish, he does that really, you know, reserved, snooty guy super well. And then there was one scene, and I can't pinpoint exactly where it was, but his eyebrows started going like up and down a lot when he talked. And I was like, oh, oh, like he, I think we're starting to see <laughs> Billy Zane get a little looser on. Ca- and then by the end of the movie, you know, he's like waving his gun around and I put I put the coat on her. And he's just like waving a gun. <laughs> What could possibly be funny? I put the diamond in the coat. I put the coat on her! I'm like, dude, I am here for it. I would watch three hours and 14 minutes of just Zane footage from this movie. Well, I'm pretty sure that he spent about three hours and 14 minutes in makeup every day just having his eyes done. Like, he is a beautiful man, first of all. And shadow. Yes. Is over the top. It's great, though. <laughs> I, You know, Brad, I have to ask, like, the, you know, this movie really launched Leo into the stratosphere. And he, he'd already had Romeo and Juliet. He was pretty big from his TV and early film roles. This is the one that made him into the heartthrob. But I have to say, like, watching young Leo in this movie, let's kind of assess his performance a little bit, because I can't quite tell if it's the fact that the dialogue in Jim Cameron's script is not always fantastic. If it's just that James Cameron didn't quite know how to direct Leo or if it's that Leo is still young and doesn't have quite the like bag of goodies that he has now in his acting you know, repertoire is 
is Leo kind of bad sometimes in this movie? Uh, oh, a hundred percent, man. <laughs> I, like, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but like, I, I don't think it's his fault all the time. You know, I think that Leo's calling card that he has slowly like dived deeper and deeper into over the years is pain. Like when you look at all of his performances throughout the years, he has dived deeper and deeper in what it means to be like an emotionally tortured human being. Mm -hmm. You see it in The Aviator, Mm. you see it in Inception, and you see it at its pinnacle in, you know, the movie he finally won an Oscar for. He literally dragged himself bloody up the stage Mm. to grab that Oscar, right? With The Revenant. Right. And so I think you don't get all, like, you don't get a single lick of that emotional depth in this movie And once again, I don't want to say that Leo didn't have it at this point in his career. Maybe he did, but this script didn't offer him a chance to dive into that. And so maybe it's part of him being young. Honestly, one of my big struggles with this movie is the fact that Leo was cast at all. Like, it really felt like a young Anakin and teenage Padme situation where, like, Kate Winslet is clearly, like, 15 years older than him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he looks like he's about a 14-year-old boy. Yeah, I mean... And that it, just kind of threw it off for and me, And the age man. difference isn't... I think it's only like two or three years, honestly. But, you know, when when the, the script was written, Cameron wrote Jack as a 20-year-old. And, like, Leo hmm. was 20 years old. 21, I think, when the movie came out. So, like, he's right in line with what the expectation was. But I really go back and forth on this because I think that five years later, Leo would have been fantastic in this movie. But... I don't think we would have ever gotten to see five years later, Leo, if it wasn't for him being in this movie. You know what I mean? Like by the time we get to the aviator, he is operating at full strength. I still think that might be his best performance ever. And here, I think it really is kind of the combination of him not knowing how to get around some of this really wooden dialogue and also just being young and still, you know, kind of inexperienced. Do you think that if he if he was like in his full Leo mode, would it have taken away from like Kate Winslet or some of the other acting performances? You know, I think that's a really good question. And like when I was doing research on this, apparently when Leo came in to read for his audition, like he didn't want to do the romantic scenes. He was goofing off a lot. And James Cameron was really frustrated with him. But as he goofed off, he could kind of see, oh, this is exactly what Jack would be doing. Like Jack would be completely flippant about this. And so he sat Leo down and said, like, I am not going to make him a tortured soul like you want to play him. I want you to play him like Jimmy Stewart. And I think like what we see on screen is Leo DiCaprio trying to play Jimmy Stewart. And I think he's doing the best he can with that direction. But like, yeah, you're right. I mean, maybe if he was in full Shutter Island mode, it would kind of take away from everything else we're supposed to be paying attention to. And on the flip side, he came from growing pains. So to go from like the kid on growing pains to, you know, definitely his whole evolution has been amazing. For sure. Um, but yeah, that's crazy. I didn't realize he was supposed to be 20 or that he was 20. Yeah. And and that's one of those issues, I think, where genuinely like Kate Winslet was carrying herself like a grown woman in her 30s. And he was supposed to carry himself like a 20 year old that still kind of thinks like a 16 or 17 year old. And so for me, I maybe that leads me to my second point. I don't know if Kate Winslet should have been cast. Like, if you really were set on Leo as, you know, being who he is. And the thing is, I actually, for the most part, really like Kate in this movie. And I think she is the star of this film. But once again, maybe I'm just harping on it too much. I think the age difference feels like a lot in this movie. And it kind of kept me 
from like believing it for a really long mm. time. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I it, it definitely seems like she's older than him. I think part of that is just the way the characters are written. The fact that she Correct. is a yeah. first class person. He's a third class person. You know, he doesn't have the manners that she does. So I, like I'm, I'm kind of there with you, Brad, but I am absolutely not going to go in on the Kate Winslet should not have been cast in this movie because she, I mean, she gets an Oscar nomination out of it. And it, I think it's 100% deserved. She is fantastic in this movie. Honestly, I don't think I've ever seen anything that Kate Winslet's been in that I don't like either. So I might be a little biased, but like, I, I think she knocks it out of the park here. I agree, though. I think they're playing the roles they that they're playing, you know, being that she is coming from this high end family and used to being very, you know, poised and knowing how to act in public and all these things. Whereas Leo's role was very much alone and just shits and giggles guy. I It would make sense for him to seem younger. Well, I think like what we keep bringing up to is there's definitely some flaws in the script of this movie. And th- this is where Cameron really struggles, I think, because he has such an incredible vision for how he wants the movie to look, how he wants the movie to feel that last hour and a half. The tension that gets ratcheted up is insane. Like there are you can tell he brings his horror movie background to some of those scenes where Kate Winslet is like under deck or below deck and you can just hear the ship groaning and creaking. It is truly tense stuff. And he he is meticulous about the way that he shows all the details of the disaster. But where it really suffers is like you're supposed to write characters that are believable and that we care about and that seem like human people. And I think sometimes like it, he doesn't really do that very well. And some of this dialogue, Brad, like where they're talking about, you know, she bought these paintings and at least they were cheap. Well, who are they by? I don't know. Something <laughs> Picasso. And it's like, it, it's just, it just seems like, you know, they should all turn at the camera and just like wink in unison. Like, Hey, we made a reference, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, did, did you guys have the same struggles with some of that dialogue that I did? Oh yeah. I, <laughs> I was rolling my eyes so <laughs> freaking hard when yeah that and they're like talking about Monet and they're like oh I don't know and then I like even the way that Jack is presented as this young mischievous kid who also is like has a advanced master's degree in art critique and is like mm, yes I love the the expressionism of it it's beautiful I'm like okay bro you're like I get that you've traveled the world some, but you're still a third ca- class passenger. Like you haven't had time to study Monet and, and these painters. So there's just a few things like that where it just feels like Cameron is trying to be like, hey, look at me. I know 1912. These are things that were happening. And I, I just I just struggle with that in the script. And really, the first hour and 39 minutes of this movie, uh, which I will dub the pre iceberg part of this movie honestly just got kind of boring for me after a while and there's fun scenes and fun moments but the the dialogue is so rough <laughs> that i just was really struggling and then the iceberg hits right should i say the the ship hits the iceberg and dag on if it is not just a wild ride for the rest of the film so brad i have a question because you said this was the first time you really watched it end to end right oh yeah so do you think it has anything to do with our attention spans being shorter and being used to, I mean, for a very long movie like this, I remember seeing it in the theaters and I was super young and I was so into every moment of it. 
But to be honest today with everything being so like, whether it's social media or instant answers, gratification, quick, you know, bite-sized pieces of stuff, it takes a lot for me to sit through a three-hour movie. Do you think you would feel differently about it if you watched it back then when it was released? You know, honestly, I think I probably would have. I think I probably would have enjoyed it more. But I, I think one of the big things, even beyond the length of time, is that the tropes in the movie are things that I have seen a million times over since then. And and the one specific one I was mm-hmm. thinking of is when, like, the one humanizing moment with Ruth, uh, Rose's mother, is when they're mm-hmm. alone in the room and she says to her, like, look, like, your father died a penniless debtor. Like, this is our mm-hmm. only chance to make it in the world. Like, do you want to see me working as mm-hmm. a seamstress? And granted, that like that might have been my favorite scene in the movie because you get to see her in full manipulation mode. And <laughs> it's it's just, it was really well acted. But in that moment, mm-hmm. I remember thinking to myself, oh, I've like, I can't tell you how many TV shows and movies I've seen where the manipulative mother is forcing her daughter to marry some rich guy. And so there's but part it's of also it's, very true in real life in a lot of cases. Yeah, no, it, it is 100%. I, I think it's just, it's that repetition of like, oh, I've seen this story before. And I always try to remind mm-hmm. myself, okay, but in 1997, maybe they hadn't seen right. this story before. And maybe Titanic set that trope to be used more often. So I try to remind myself of that, but it still makes it a little bit, you know, hard to see sometimes. If you imagined different actors in those roles, who would you guys imagine? Oh, this is like one of my favorite games to play <laughs> is like if we if we remade this movie today, who would uh-huh. we cast in these roles? Mm-hmm. A, I think that Leo should be the captain of the ship. That would be a fun little reprisal mm. in the remake. So, yeah, I mean, I don't oh, I don't know if I'd want to see this remade, but I, I definitely can't picture anybody else in this era playing it because I think it's just become such an iconic pairing. You know, it's like saying, okay, if we were going to take Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman out of Casablanca, who are we going to put in there instead? And I'm like, I, I don't want to play that game, but at or the do same- it over instead of a remake, go back to 1997 and who would you have cast instead of them? Ooh. So that's a, that's a really good question because like every young actor in Hollywood was trying out for this movie. Like Matthew McConaughey mm-hmm. did a couple screen tests for this movie. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, Jared Leto apparently was in talks for a little bit, but then he like refused to audition for it. And then they moved on from him. <laughs> I, I don't know, oh, man. Wow. Like I, I genuinely think the the redeeming quality here and the thing that really keeps me coming back to it and makes the relationship so good at the end of the day is like, in spite of the fact that some of the dialogue is terrible, in spite of the fact that like, I think, yeah, the, the pacing could be tightened up a little bit in the first half, their chemistry is so palpable. And is something that you just can't replicate by plugging two actors in there that like, I don't, I don't want to replace that. I think we got like the, the apex of how these two roles could be played given like all the limitations around it. These two actors are, are seriously at the top of their game in spite of all that, I think. Yeah, I think that is the thing that really buoys this movie up is the fact that you can just tell there's an authentic connection between Kate and Leo in this film that Mm -hmm. they are having a blast making this movie together. And I I think that is the only like real redeeming quality for me for the first half of the film is just watching those two have fun together. Like the Mm -hmm. scene when she first looks at his his drawings when they're up on the first class deck and she invited him up to kind of like thank him. 
and she gets frustrated with him. Like that is just such an amazing scene. And you just see their chemistry on full display. And so, yeah, Bob, I'm right there with you. The the only reason this movie really can keep on, you know, can carry on the way it does is the fact that they just had great stinking chemistry. Probably more so in real life. I love their relationship. Um, I can't remember if it was her Oscar speech or something where she thanked him. And it was just so heartfelt and genuine. Mm. And there was a lot of public, oh, why don't those two get together why aren't they dating? And it um, was probably the first example that came to mind when I had heard a long time ago, there was a quote that was like, I love you too much to date you. And sometimes when you're in a relationship with someone, it kind of kills some aspects of the friendship. Um, I really love that energy that they seem to have together. And whether Leo wants to date, you know, 25 year old models or whatever, like, Cool. They seem to get each other. And I think it's a really good example, especially in Hollywood, of just two people that genuinely care for one another. Well, and I think when you go through something like what this movie must have put them through again, like I keep going back to it, but the cultural footprint of this movie was felt for so, so long after it. I mean, it is it really is kind of impossible to sum up just how big this movie was, how big the Celine Dion song was that came out of it. Mm -hmm. That was I felt like you could turn on any radio station for like a solid two years after this movie came out. And that song was guaranteed to be on somewhere. And for Kate and Leo to have to watch their careers get kind of skyrocketed after this and deal with the constant media attention that they did. You know, it kind of reminds me of like when you see um, the reunion of like the kids from Harry Potter or something like they're the only ones that know what it was like to go through that. And I think that really does kind of mm -hmm. form a real life bond between them. And even the supporting roles in the movie, like Kathy Bates's character, I loved her character. And, you know, I just thought she was the one that wanted to go back for her husband, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she was the poor one. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so let's do this because we are running a little bit long and we're going to have to get to our whiskey segment here soon. Let's just go through Brad, Jackie, your favorite person in the supporting cast and why. So, Jackie, it sounds like Kathy Bates is one that really stood out to you as the real life person, Molly Brown, the unsinkable Molly Brown. Why, why do you love Kathy Bates in this role? I loved that she seemed to be very authentic to herself and she had changed kind of her position in life, but she didn't let go of who she was. And I love that she wanted to go back for her husband. And very few people did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Kathy Bates, I think in every film, I realized this as you were saying it, Jackie, this might sound really weird. I feel like she's kind of like the female Tom Hanks. Like she is <laughs> Kathy Bates in everything that she does. She's honestly one of the best actresses out there. And I just love her and everything. She's authentic. She's down to earth. She's real. And she really fits this role perfectly. No, she, yeah, she's a gem. <laughs> Brad, who would your pick be? I think for me, I absolutely loved Victor Garber as uh, yeah. as Andrews, the architect of the ship. His, but he didn't make enough lifeboats. Well, it, he tried to make enough lifeboats, and then other people said, no, this ship won't sink. We don't need those other lifeboats because they're pretentious Like idiots. his job was to push back on that one. <laughs> I, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's no. some definite like OSHA violations going on here. <laughs> just one or two <laughs> but no i just i really loved his performance he kind of like kathy bates honestly just came across as super authentic 
And like mm-hmm. he never fully got caught up in the hype and hysteria around the Titanic, even though he was the one who built it. Um, he he just genuinely came across as this architecturally minded. I, I like I really care about this ship, and I care about the people on this ship. The ship will sink. Certain? Yes. In an hour or so, all this will be at the bottom of the Atlantic. What? Please, tell only who you must. I don't want to be responsible for a panic and get to a boat quickly. Don't wait. You remember what I told you about the boats? Yes. I I just really enjoyed his performance, especially at the end of the film when he's quietly like making sure the clock is on the right minute mm. as the ship mm. is sinking. There's such dignity in that moment yes. that I just, I loved his performance. Wait, wait, wait. I want to change my answer to the musicians that were playing oh, when man. the ship was sinking. Oh, Listen, we, we can, d- we can change my answer. <laughs> we can dedicate a whole segment in the back half of the episode to the near, nearer my God to the montage. Cause it is like, I weep like a child at multiple parts of the second half of this movie. It is. And that this is where Cameron really, really excels as a director is those tiny little character flourishes like Andrew's winding the clock a little bit. It's so in, in character with who he is as a very meticulous person. And like, it almost makes you more frustrated that it's like he didn't just bring in somebody to help him with the dialogue a little bit. Right. But but Brad, that little moment with Victor Garber, it's so well played. I think if there's anybody aside from uh, the the king whom we stand, Billy Zane, that we should talk about, <laughs> it's uh, it's Bernard Hill as the captain of the ship. I think he does Dude. a really great job. Ki- don't you mean King Theoden of Rohan? Yes, we've already talked the Titanic. <laughs> we've already talked about him in the Lord of the Rings this season. I think he's really great here as a sort of stoic person who is like, you know. In all honesty, he's like a figurehead. Like he's this very decorated ship captain who's on his last voyage before he gets to retire. He's pretty much just hired to be a yes man when they tell him to, you know, increase the speed of the ship so they can get to New York quicker so it can be more better publicity for the RMS Titanic. And watching him slowly come to the realization of we hit an iceberg, there is nothing we can do. The ship will be at the bottom of the Atlantic in two hours. And then like the little things Cameron does to put like like when he comes out on the ship and it's sinking and people are there's chaos everywhere and the woman runs up to him with a baby and is just like, what? where do I go? Please tell me where to go, Captain. And he just goes and barricades himself in the captain's quarters and is like, I'm just going to wait for death here. It's moments like that. And it's the acting that really brings it home where. This isn't just a movie anymore. This isn't just like fictional people dying in a made up disaster environment. Like it really, truly hit me watching this movie, the weight of the loss of human life. And like, guys, I thought this movie was a lot heavier. You know, I watched it as a teenager and I was like, oh, that guy hit the propeller on the way down. How cool is that? Watching it now. And I think maybe (laughs) even like living through what we've lived through the last couple decades, watching disasters like that unfold. It really, really did hit me. And I think that the cast of this movie does such a good job in driving home that point as well. Bro, I'm not going to lie. I went through a phase of watching movies where like death really bothered me a lot. Where like we'd be watching some like, I don't know, some movie about gangsters and like some random dude would just get shot in the middle of a firefight. You didn't know who he was. He was literally just an extra. 
didn't matter anything to the Mm -hmm. story. And I would get choked up about it. This was like for like a year or two where it just bothered the heck out of me that we just so casually involve death in our daily Mm -hmm. media choices. And, you know, I'm not quite as sensitive to it as I was for that time period, but it still hits me a lot. And then you watch a movie like this and you see people falling off, you know, two, three hundred feet from, you know, the top of the ship when it's when it's uh, fully almost submerged. You just see that. And yeah, Bob, you just weep. You look at it and you go, holy crap. Like, what did human pride bring about? Hmm. Wow, we are we are really moving into a downer section of the podcast here. So, Brad, before we get too far into our own misery here, I think it's time for us to to break and drink this Michter's US one. Jackie's not going to be joining us for this section of the podcast, but she has assured us that she has been sipping on whiskey the entire time we've been recording. Jackie, what are you drinking tonight? Oh, she has. I have been drinking the Belveni Caribbean cask aged 14 years because when I heard we were doing Titanic, iceberg straight ahead. This is the best whiskey to have on a giant rock. And, you know, I normally drink my whiskey neat, but I'm like, I got to do it. And I know the Titanic wasn't in the Caribbean, I don't think, but kind of went with the theme. So I have been enjoying this, one of my favorite pours. I love it. I wish that we put as much thought into pairing (laughs) our whiskeys with our movies (laughs) as you just currently did with the Balvenny. Brad, it's time for us to try this Michter's US1. What do you say we get to it? Let's get to it. Right, so today we are checking out Michter's US One Unblended American Whiskey. Brad, this is maybe the longest uh, title for a whiskey we've ever had on this podcast, and I'm really kind of uncertain how I'm going to put it in the episode title without going over our character limit. I was going to say, I think that this might be the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert <laughs> Ford of whiskeys. That's that's very true, actually. So, Brad, <laughs> we know that our episode is kind of running a little long already today. I'm going to keep it very brief on the intro comments here. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the Michter's brand, go look it up. It's really, really historic, but it's kind of one of those situations, again, where somebody revived kind of a dead brand back in the 1990s. They built it back up into being a respectable brand. They were sourcing their product for a long, long time. And it was kind of controversial because no one could ever figure out exactly where they were sourcing Michter's from. They built their own distillery and have been distilling their own stuff since 2015. But that means that a lot of their older, more aged stuff is still coming from some of that older stock that is, you know, sourced, which is okay. And we have no problem with sourced whiskeys. I think sometimes, Brad, that the things that irk us are when a company tries to like manufacture its own history. And what we're really looking at here is a brand that's using a really old name, but the brand itself is only like 20 years old. Bob, I just want to drink good whiskey. 
And I I think that this has a chance to be that. Yeah. And it has a chance to not be that. And that's so the thing we'll is see. like, you know, <laughs> there are whiskey podcasts out there that would do a whole episode on like the history of the Michter's brand. I don't really care. Like, you know, do I wish that they were a little more forthcoming in how they did their marketing? Sure. But at the end of the day, if this is a good bottle of whiskey, I'm still going to recommend it. Like that doesn't make any difference to me. Does it? Does this sway your opinion at all, Brad? Oh, no. I Yeah. If a whiskey is good, I'll give it a good score. If they're really underhanded in the way they market it, but it's really good whiskey, I'll give it a good score. Yeah. If they have the worst marketing team in the world, but it's a really good whiskey, I'll give it a good score. There it is. Like, like I, that's just kind of how I feel about it. So what we have in our glass today is an American whiskey. It's not bourbon. It's not rye. The reason they call it an American whiskey is because it is basically aged in used barrels. So they're, on their website, they say that they used bourbon-soaked barrels, which just means we were aging bourbon in these barrels and we want to get another use out of them. So we're going to use these used barrels now. This comes in at only 83.4 proof. So it's a low proof whiskey aged in used barrels, which means it probably will have like a much milder flavor to it and, and should be a pretty smooth drinker for us. It's been a while, Brad, since we've done a whiskey at this low of a proof point. So I think it might be a little bit of an adjustment for us as we get into tasting it. Uh, but I'm I'm anxious to hear what you think. So what are you picking up on the nose of this unblended American whiskey? Well, I was going to say, I, as I get into the aroma of this bad boy, it, it's not super potent alcohol wise, which is honestly a little bit refreshing. For me, I, I pick up a lot of like really sweet notes. It, it kind of has like a honey, caramel, vanilla. Just a mixture of like a candy shop type of feel to it. Um, I will say it, it feels like it's missing out on anything that could, you know, balance that out. Any some nice smoky oak notes or anything like that. It's just a very all around sweet nose that, you know, it's it's pretty nice. Uh, I'll give it a six and a half on the on the nose. Yeah. I mean, in, in the Glencairn that I'm drinking out of, I think the alcohol does jump out a little bit more than I expected it to. Um, but even just kind of sniffing the sample bottle that we got this out of. And first of all, thank you to our friend Austin Dupree at the Bourboneering podcast for this sample. You're right, Brad. It has those just classic bourbon-y notes to it. Um, and again, this doesn't qualify as a bourbon, but essentially what we're looking at here is like a really low proof, mild flavored bourbon. I, and I'm with you, man. Like it smells very sweet, smells very caramely, lots of vanilla. And those are the most boring, bland notes you can possibly give to describe something. <laughs> but that's what's there. So, you know, uh, at a low proof point, I think it's very pleasant. I'm with you, Brad. I'm going to give it a six and a half on the nose. Yeah. And as I get into the taste, I, I feel like this is a really nice, almost like a silky smooth whiskey. Um, that lower proof point is allowing the flavors to interact without like offending any part of your palate with a really strong, you know, alcohol forward note. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it almost has like a little bit of a strawberry shortcake kind of feel mm. to it. Um, you get that vanilla from the cakiness. It's it's a little bit of that sweet fruit that you might get from a strawberry. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of a pleasantly sweet, simple whiskey that I'll, I'll give it a seven on the taste. It has a little bit of almost like a, I don't want to call it sour, but almost a citrusy kind of thing going on. And when you said strawberry shortcake, it almost has like a, like an underripe strawberry, like when it's a little bit tart still. Yeah. I'm, yep. I'm really fascinated by this, Brad, because you're right. It is such a mild flavor. This drinks like water compared to like what we're used to drinking. But I don't think it's just that it's a low proof. I think that the fact they're using used barrels means it's just not imparting a whole lot of flavor into it. And I think what I'm struggling with here, Brad, is like, 
do you think this would be the kind of a whiskey that you would give to someone as like a gateway whiskey or not? Because I could see it going either way. I think it might have too mild of a flavor to really have a lot of use, if I'm being honest. Well, I will say, though, like if somebody, especially if it's somebody who's not used to drinking any liquors at all, like if they're just a beer drinker through and through, I I would probably disagree with you a little bit and say, no, like stick with this low proof stuff because there's there's a decent amount of flavor here, but you don't really get a lot of. I don't know. There is a certain amount of depth that you get with the higher proof. But if you're not used to the higher proof, I think it's easier to focus on the alcohol than on the flavor. Yeah. So so I guess I would lean towards saying, no, like if it, if it's a new whiskey drinker, eh, maybe this would be a great one to get them started with. That's fair. I think for me, I just wish that it had a little bit more like, I don't even know what the word is, roundness to the flavor. Like it's it's kind of there, but you really have to pull it out. And so for me, I think I'm only going to give this about a five and a half on flavor. Yeah, and that and that brings us to our finish. I was actually pretty surprised. It's got like a really nice long Kentucky hug. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was about the only part of the whiskey that was like, oh, there's some alcohol here that's that's you know making itself known. Honestly, I've never had a vanilla note last as long on a whiskey as I have had on this one. Like, I, like it was like a solid thirty or forty seconds after I drank it, and I was like, man, I just still feel like I just put a fresh drop of vanilla straight on my tongue. And I and I actually kind of really like it. So I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the finish. You know, that's funny that you say that, Brad, because uh, apparently just in doing research on this, this is a very divisive whiskey. And some people think it's really smooth and well balanced. Other people say that it's like overly vanilla. And it's really funny that you pick up on that. I think it's definitely there. And I'm actually surprised at the amount of oak character this has to it, too. Uh, you're right. It has quite a bit of a Kentucky hug. It's warming on the way down, but there's never any moment where it's harsh or overbearing. And so for like an 83 proof whiskey, I think this, this has a lot of character to it. I'm going to go ahead and give it a seven on the finish. And that takes us into overall balance. Now, this is where we talk about nose, taste, and finish all put together. Was it one cohesive experience or did something kind of stand out in a positive or negative way? beyond the rest of it. I think this is a pretty solid overall drinking experience, Brad. I do think that it got better as it went along. For me, the low point was really the taste. And that's where you don't want the low point to be. Like it has a nice finish. It has a nice nose, but it really was lacking any sort of like depth to the flavors. And I think that really takes away from the overall balance. I'm only going to give this a six on balance. Yeah, I'm in a similar spot. I'm giving it a six and a half on balance. Honestly, it's just kind of a nice, pleasant whiskey. Um, There's not a ton of complexity. It's not going to blow you away with any of its specific flavors, maybe with vanilla, if that's what you're looking for. But, you know, it's it's fine. It's good. Yeah, six and a half. So this is where I think it's going to get interesting, because now we're going to get into our value category. And, you know, Brad, in the state of Ohio, a bottle of this will set you back $42.99. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, this is like Basil Hayden's kind of range where it's only an 80, 83 proof whiskey and they're selling it at kind of a premium price. I guess what the, the first question I'll ask you as we talk about value is, do you think an 83 proof whiskey should ever be 40 plus dollars? I think that there's a world where it could be worth that much. Agreed. Uh, um, I, Yeah, I've had some lower proof whiskeys that are just chock full of flavor and complexity. You know, it doesn't happen as often, but yeah, $43 is a lot. Like, uh, like honestly, as I was drinking this, I was like, man, this is like a nice $28 whiskey, $30 whiskey. Mm-hmm. 
And if if that was the case, I'd probably give it like, I don't know, a seven to eight on value if it was only $28 to $30. But as it is, $43 is a lot of money. I mean, you can get wild turkey uh, rare breed for one or two more dollars than this. Right. And that's like a barrel proof 118, you know, that is just beautiful and smooth and amazing. So at this price, I don't think it's a bad whiskey. I do think it's way overpriced by about 10 to $15. I'll give it a four and a half on the uh, value. So this is where this is where it's hard for me because we don't have anything at this price point that is a comparable proof to kind of refer people to. Like everything I'm thinking of is at least 90 proof. And that's why I'm kind of like, oh man, is there an 80 proofer out there that is worth the money? You know, there is one in, in the BTAC collection, the Buffalo Trace uh, antique collection that is, I think it's the Sazerac that they released that at 80, 80 proof. And we haven't tried that yet. And maybe that is a mind-blowingly complex, great whiskey at 80 proof. I just haven't encountered one on this show yet that I would that I feel would justify that price tag. So I think I'm right there with you, Brad. For me, this is only going to be about a three and a half to a four. I'll go ahead and give it a four just because it's unique. Uh, but that is putting me out to a 29 out of 50. What's that bringing your final score to, Brad? Uh, I'm a few points higher. I'm at a 33 out of 50. All right. So that's bringing our average to a 31 out of 50 or a 62 out of 100. That's below the threshold where we would normally recommend you trying and buying. I, I mean, I don't. I don't hate this, Brad. I don't think it's bad in any sense. If you want to try something lower proof at a bar, I think it's definitely worth getting a pour. I would not recommend buying a bottle of it, though. Where are you falling on that kind of metric? Yeah, if you have a good friend who's like really into whiskey with you, I'd say, you know, go ahead and split a bottle maybe. But yeah, buy it at a bar. It's it's okay. I don't know, Bob. I don't think there's been many whiskeys that we've just flat out not recommended. And I, I don't think I could take this one to that place as well. Yeah. But but also not like a hearty recommendation from us either. No, it's yeah, <laughs> it's solid. Well, luckily, I think we both like the movie Titanic better than we like this whiskey. So what do you say we bring Jackie back on here and we keep talking about our movie of the day? Let's get to it. So that was Michter's US-1 Unblended American Whiskey. We are getting back into talking about Titanic. And this is usually the part of the show where we get into our more kind of analysis, analytical side of, of talking about this movie. Guys, before we went to the break, we were talking about, I guess, the more serious aspects of this movie and, and how much it really affected us. And I don't really know how else to say this. I took a note midway through the disaster see you know the whole second half of the movie and the whole note was just this movie is fucking me up because like i'm i'm right where you are brad i don't know if it's just like having kids now and like the constant awareness of things that can harm your child or like them getting their feelings hurt like you just become how really, soft the soft spot on their head is i don't even mean like physically <laughs> vulnerable i just mean like the way that the that that words can hurt people like i just you become really hyper aware of those kind of things 
And, you know, watching the mom tuck the two kids into bed, knowing that like none of them are going to survive there. And there, and again, credit to Cameron for not shying away from it. It's not glossed over. It's not Hollywoodized. Yes. You have these two fictional characters running through all this like carnage, but he, he makes you dwell on it. And there's this one moment where they're like rounding a corner to try to get out of there. And there's a family that, you know, they look like they're, they're definitely from Asia somewhere. And they're trying to read the directions on the side of the wall. And you can tell they don't read English. And it's like, oh, my gosh, these people are going to die just because they don't they don't speak English. And it just this movie affected me way more than I remembered it affecting me before. Yeah, I, I think you can we can talk about it with the classic debate of like. What's the purpose of movies to help you escape the real world or think more deeply about it? Hmm. And I and honestly, we we shouldn't be saying this in hypotheticals. I think this movie does both. And that's why it's so beloved. Agreed. I think it's great. It ta- I mean, I watch horror movies sometimes just when I want to remind myself how lucky I am that I'm not in like a Saw movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or not. You know, I mean, it sounds morbid, but I. People say, oh, you like scary movies because they freak you out. I'm like, no, I like scary movies because it reminds me of what I have. Mm. And when I'm feeling depressed sometimes, I'm like, yeah, but my head's not in a vice (laughs) or I don't have some weird psycho (laughs) coming after me. Like, I mean, again, it sounds morbid, but I appreciate movies that make me happy to be alive. And the empathy that you feel for people, you know, passing on the Titanic, I think that's important. And it makes me question myself, like the musicians that know they're going to die. Or there was that elderly couple that just, mm-hmm. they didn't try to get out. They just hugged and mm-hmm. went down. Right. Like yeah. all those decisions. I mean, I don't know. I, I think like if, if I was in that situation, what would I do? Would I be there like a musician trying to comfort everyone else knowing that it was going down? Would I be jumping on a lifeboat? Would I be, I think those are good things to think about for us, for people. Well, Jackie, I think that you're like really keying in on one of the most important parts of watching films in general is that it allows you, if you empathize properly, to say, well, what would I do if I was in this situation? And it helps you think so much more deeply about the world. And I think that what Titanic does is it puts the dignity and value of human life at the forefront. That in those little moments, I think what what Cameron does best is what you guys are saying. He shows the mother hopelessly and yet lovingly tucking her two children in for the last time of any of their lives. And, And he puts you in places like that and forces you to reckon with the fact that human pride has cost us these people's lives. Well, and this is where I think that, like, the framing device of the movie actually really helps it. Because for a long time, I was like, do we really need the Bill Paxton stuff? I I think that Cameron just really wanted to film the wreckage and, like, shoehorned it in. But Mm. I think I remember when I first took a public speaking class and they talked about how to give a speech. And basically, like, the structure of a a basic speech is tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you just told them. Mm. And what Cameron Mm. does in that opening segment, he they go through that whole, you know, computer visualization of like, here's how the thing sank it, you know, the end of it went up in the air and then it splits in half and you're like, oh, cool. That's going to be fun to watch. And then you get to it happening. And like, yes, it is a marvel of, you know, visual effects. Absolutely. And stunt work and everything else. You don't really think about, oh, I'm going to have to watch all these people die horrible, horrible deaths. And I think the fact that it is a historical event 
really kind of necessitates that Cameron does that. Like he he forces you to watch it. And I think it's important that he does that because I just watched Godzilla versus Kong last week. And I, Brad, if I tell you, like, I loved Godzilla versus Kong <laughs> because it just appeals to a part of me that's like giant monkey punching giant lizard. Like I'm on board for that. But like the whole the whole final sequence of that movie is them fighting in a hugely populated city and like millions of people have to die in this. And it's kind of awkward to watch this many buildings get knocked over. But I think the thing that separates this movie from like a Godzilla versus Kong is that because you you understand that this is something that really happened, that every death on screen is there for a reason. It's not there for necessarily entertainment value. It's there to remind you of this really catastrophic event that happened. I think that's what ultimately makes this movie more worthwhile than a movie like a Godzilla versus Kong. Yeah, and I think one of the most important parts of the movie is that not only does Cameron show you everybody rushing around on the ship trying to find, you know, safety and save their own lives, but he also forces you to sit in the cold water after, you know, the entire ship has sank and he puts you in the lifeboat with the searchers and makes you look at all of these dead people frozen in the water. Mm-hmm. And there's something so powerful about the stillness of that, I don't know, six, seven minute shot. That that stillness after all the frenzied activity is yeah. almost this like coldness that infiltrates your own heart of like, oh my God, what just happened? Well, and I don't mm-hmm. mean to keep steering us into like the filmmaking part of it, but this again, like there are little things that Cameron does where you go, oh, I see what you're doing there. And only a person who is a cinematic genius can really pull this off. I don't know if you remember, Brad, but we watched Gone with the Wind a couple years ago. And one of the most famous shots of Gone with the Wind is when Scarlett O'Hara comes out of that like makeshift hospital she's working in and the camera slowly pulls back and you see all of those wounded soldiers laying there. And Cameron Mm -hmm. does that shot in this movie. Like when Rose comes up from underwater and is going, Jack, Jack, where are you? And it just pans back, like pulls back into a crane shot. And you just see the expanse of like, oh, my gosh, there are hundreds of people like kicking to stay above water, to stay alive. It is like it's such a great shot. And it's, it's really cool that he like pays homage to Gone with the Wind. But it also, again, really drives home the point of like what we're witnessing here. Honestly, Bob, I, I, as we've been talking about like the importance of human life and, and the importance of sitting with tragedies like this, it really makes me think of the movie we watched a little bit ago, Schindler's List. I was just going to ask if, have you guys seen that movie, um, The Boy in the, the Boy in the Striped Pajamas? Oh my gosh. In the Striped Pajamas? Brad, have you seen that have movie? Have you seen that? It, it was on my Netflix watch list for a long time and I never actually got the courage up to watch it. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, to me, yeah. what you're talking about right now reminds me a little bit about that movie because it was one boy, but it was somebody's son, right? right? And I feel like the narrative of how important that boy, that one boy was, is so impactful. Hmm. And honestly, like all of this talk about, you know, the impact that this movie, that Schindler's List, that movies like this can have leads me to kind of a question for you guys. What do you guys do after you watch a movie like this, after a movie like The Boy in the Striped Pajamas? Like, you have all these emotions and this this feeling of like, man, human life is hard. Mm. Like, suffering is real. 
So like, you know, I, I have thoughts on it, but what do you guys do with those emotions and thoughts when you're done watching a movie like this? So I'm leveling up. I always go to bed and wake up with three things I'm grateful for. But at the end of the day, you know, I grew up doing missions trips, doing a lot more volunteer work. When the riots were happening in LA, I just drove up there one day with a trash bag and picked up trash. I didn't want to do it for like social media cred or, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it was amazing to me just to be around people again, people that were cleaning up of all races, of all colors, just to clean up mm. for no credit to not get paid. And it humbled me. So to answer that question, when I see something like that, I'll tell you, I use what I used to do is just feel really guilty <laughs> that I wasn't doing more to help our world. Um, and since then, I've been like, okay, I need to make a strategic plan. And sometimes it is as lame for me as like watching a movie to realize I miss that part of me that did more volunteer work that was out there more. And not just like I learned from these people. Yeah. I learned happiness. I loved gratitude. I mean, gratitude. And again, I've been going back to the movie. I forgot that when Leonardo, when Leo goes, you know, I'm the king of the world and he's so happy. That's even before he met Kate and he's poor. And then she's the rich one trying to commit suicide and jump off the boat, telling him he's crazy. And when he's like, but you're the one trying to jump off the boat. (laughs) I'm like, oh, that I felt that. And authenticity to me, it's not money that buys you happy. I mean, money makes things easier. Absolutely. But, um, you know, I mean, not to get super dark, but when Anthony Bourdain and and Kate Spade had committed suicide or had, uh, you know, passed by suicide, that really shook me. And I didn't, I didn't know either of them, but it was a very big reminder that you can have all the things, not be happy. And I think movies, I love how much you guys appreciate movies, um, especially like the impact it makes on you. Yeah. It's so refreshing to hear. Well, and I think that's like, that's what movies do at their best. Like they, they shine a light on things and whether it's, you know, us watching, some like it hot and it's just a comedy and it reminds you of of what it means to to have joy and to laugh. And sometimes you watch a movie like this and it reminds you of what's really important in life. It reminds you of, you know, the the dangers of too much arrogance and pride. And like this, this is what I love talking about when we talk about movies. Like we went a little more vulnerable, a little more deep than we usually go in our episodes today. But I cannot say how grateful I am, first of all, that we went there. And secondly, Jackie, that you were willing to come on today and and kind of bare your soul a little bit with us. And I think, honestly, as we transition into our final scores for this movie, Brad, you know, we talked a little bit before recording, and I think this is like one of the more flawed, big Hollywood epic best picture winners. Like, it's the kind of movie they don't make anymore. And I think there's a reason they don't make it anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, this movie probably is 10 to 15 minutes too long. and Maybe some of the dialogue is a little wooden. And at the same time, this movie like made me go to emotional places that I was never expecting to go watching this. And I think because of that, because of the the meticulous attention to detail that Cameron puts on display here, because of what a powerful piece of filmmaking it truly is. Brad, I know it's flawed. I think I'm going to give this movie a 10 out of 10. Wow. And this is not something I do regularly, Jackie. So I'm like this is this is a big deal for me. <laughs> I say, Bob, I think you've given more movies wow. this season a ten out of ten than like 
the first three seasons combined. So you're like kind of on a roll of 10 Maybe out of 10, my friend. I mean, I'm a big softy. What can I say? Like I'm, I'm coming around to this thing called I feeling. I have one question, one more question yeah. that I have to interrupt and get your opinions on because this has been on my, in my head for a while. You know, that last scene where she throws the heart of the ocean into the ocean. Yes. Do you think that scene did more damage? Like, was it, so for me, it became such a, I mean, with all the messages in the movie, it became such a thing of how could she just throw all that money away? It equated to money. And like Britney Spears did her music video about it. It it was so, and it kind of took over aspects of the film that was, there was, in my opinion, there was so much thought and time and emotion into to all wrap it up to be like, oh, she threw away this really expensive diamond at the end. It was so stupid to become a talking point of this brilliant movie. I mean, but maybe that was the the purpose. I don't know. I mean, I mean I think do this, you guys, what do you think about that scene? I think this is an, like another one of those areas where like Cameron kind of wrote himself into a corner a little bit. Cause he, he set it up as the whole framing device. Of the movie is these guys are looking for this diamond. So, you know, there has to be a payoff with the diamond and what they actually originally shot as the ending was, you know, old Rose goes out to throw the diamond off and, Bill Paxton and her granddaughter are there and they see her climbing those railings and they think she's going to jump. And there's this whole really tense scene where they're like, no, come back. And she's like, you don't understand what I'm doing. She eventually like lets Bill Paxton hold the diamond and convinces him like it's better for us to both let this thing go. And they drop it in the ocean together. And they they eventually like they they watched it back and they were like, we got to cut this at this point of the movie. No one cares about Bill Paxton's character. We've had yeah. we've had it, the resolution Jack somehow involved or like maybe people could forgive her more for letting him go. Right. <laughs> like, so that's like, you know, you've watched all these people die and then you've watched like the end of Jack and Rose. You've watched Rose come to America. I think they were just like, all right, well, we have to put something in here so people know what happens with the diamond. But I think you're right, Jackie. Like it it is like this one last little thing where it's like, all right, is this the message I'm supposed to be getting from this? Because. Yeah. This seems kind of unnecessary. Now you're having me rethinking my well, 10 I out of 10. I have questions too, right? This woman is very old. So she's had this necklace for a very long time. Right. Why now? What was so significant? Is it because she went back on to the, you know, she'd never been on the water since then and it reconnected with her? Like, why now? Well, she's uh, held on to this necklace for so long. And how is this frail? Why are you just throwing it in the ocean now? How is this old woman like sneaking this necklace around with no one else seeing There's it? There's so many questions. Who packed I've, that I've, bag yeah. for her? Did <laughs> they not see the giant? I just felt like he needed to give a little more backstory and explanation on why. But it did become such a big talking point of just because of the valuation of what the necklace would be. Guys, you know? I am going to solve. Done... I'm going to solve all these problems for you. This is yes. going to be the Brad edited version yeah. of Titanic. <laughs> Get rid of every single modern part of the film, like all the you know 1997 scenes. Just have the film be set, you know, in 1912 on the Titanic, and at the end of the film, when uh, when Leo is falling into the depths. Kate just drops the locket down right after him because he is her heart mm. and he is in the ocean forever. And beautiful. so she drops it with him. And then you can show her, yeah. you know, arriving in New York and you could even do a little like montage of her, like, you know, having kids or something like that. Or you just end it with her surviving. I, but I honestly think the worst part of this film, hands down, is the fact that they had anything from the modern era in it. And, I, and honestly, that's kind of what leads me to my final score here. I think that this is 
just a really ballsy movie, right? That like James Cameron just takes one of the biggest, you know, terrible events in human history, at least in the Western world, and he throws it on the screen. He does amazing job with all the action sequences. He makes you feel all the feels you need to feel. But there's so much wooden dialogue. Some of like the first person cinematography is really, really rough, in my opinion. Um, even some of the scenes, uh, some of the action scenes, like when they're in the hallways that were filling up with water, like you could just tell that there was just plain old strobe lights on them. And I'm like, ah, they, you know, that just looks bad. So like there's certain parts of this film that just aren't great. And when you throw on top of it all of those scenes, um, with Billy Paxton and Old Rose and her granddaughter and the stupid, just bumbling researcher that was like trying to be smart and snarky and was just a bad <laughs> actor. Like when you throw all of that on top, I think that there's just too much weight on this movie that could have been streamlined into a really beautiful film. And so for me, like this is an eight. I, I'll give it an eight and a half out of 10. I, I'm I'm kind of struggling, but I think I've talked myself into giving it an eight and a half. But yeah, it's a phenomenal film, but there's just too much going on that I can't ignore. I have a, a, I have a really funny, I wrote my number down a while ago, but one thing I, I, I know I'm annoying. I, one question is when you said about um, the storytelling aspect, I know it was modern day, but I think of the princess bride and you know how the beginning was like the grandfather starting the story with oh, yeah. um, young Fred Savage. Is it that concept? Like, did you, were you okay with that part of the princess bride or is it more like the modern stuff. Um, Cause I personally loved that part of the princess bride, but I get what you're saying with Titanic. It didn't really, it felt rushed and weird. Um, but yeah. So for Prince, like a movie like princess bride, where it starts with reading a, a story, is it more the narrative that you don't care for of telling a story showing that part? Or was it just Titanic in, no, in I particular? Yeah, no, I really don't mind, you know, when movies use use flashbacks to tell a story. I think the problem is that this story is framed as a flashback, but you only actually ever return to the modern, you know, era, the the storyteller like once in the middle of the movie and then at the start and the finish of the movie. And so in order for a story to be effective at showing flashbacks, I think what you need to show is how the flashbacks inform who the character is in the present. But because we don't spend any time with the characters in the present, why are we jumping back and forth? And so I think that's why I would say for this movie specifically, cut it out. Like just cut uh the entire modern part. The answer to your question is because James Cameron wanted to go look at the wreckage of the Titanic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he needed to write a scene to get him there. <laughs> so there's the answer to that. Oh, wow. Okay. But, but Jackie, all right, let's hear the final score. What would you give Titanic on a one to My 10 scale? Score, it was also an 8.5. For me, I would have loved to see more of the interaction and understanding of one another, empathy with the different classes. And I feel like, yes, we saw it with Leo and Kate. Um, but some of my favorite scenes were, you know, below deck in the lower class, dancing, having fun. I would have loved to see a little more of that influence on one another. Or, and that's probably why I loved Kathy Bates's character so much. You know, I feel like she could have gone down below deck and had a blast. I think it was a missed opportunity to help people relate to one another. Wow. All right. I, I, I was not expecting going into this episode that I would be the sole 10 out of 10 here. But... Uh... <laughs> 
Your, your boy is holding it down here. If you average out me and Brad, we are coming out to a 9.25 out of 10. Uh, but we want to know what you think. Are you Team Bob or Team Brad on this one? I highly recommend going back and watching Titanic through. I'm sure for a lot of people, it's been a number of years. I have to say, like, this movie emotionally affected me way more than I thought it would. So if you are uh, feeling as vulnerable as me after watching this movie, reach out to us and let us know. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or if you want, you can leave us a voicemail. Let your voice be heard on the Film and Whiskey podcast. You can leave us a voicemail on our website, which is anchor.fm slash Film Whiskey. Once again, we want to say thank you so much to our guest host, Jackie James. Jackie, where can people find you? And maybe what's an event that you have coming up that you'd like to plug? Thank you guys so much for having me. And thank you so much for listening. You guys can find me at, at Jackie James on Instagram or JackieJames.com. And if you want to get more involved in the conversation, and we would love to hear your thoughts on Titanic, follow Whiskey with Jackie James on the Clubhouse app and join us as we review with you some more fun details about Titanic. Cheers. All right. We will be back next Monday with another special guest host, Brad. We've got Peggy No Stevens coming in to talk about maybe the greatest movie ever made, 1972's The Godfather. So make sure to join us for that next week. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.